Thank you, Ken. All right, now I have a sermon brought to us by a pastor from Big Sandy, Dave Haber, entitled Understanding True Faith. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is great to be back here. It's always great to see friends, and uh, I won't say old faces. I want to mention this, though. I, I've started getting worried. You know, Matt said when he was up here, he said about old friends, and he looked over at me <laughs> as I was sitting beside Ray Kerr. And I was taking it personally until Lawrence started calling Elder Kerr old man. So I'm pretty sure now that Matt was not looking at me, he was looking at Ray. Uh, so I felt a whole lot better about that. Also wanted to mention that I'm really glad to see the good rapport you have with your pastor. I think that's great. So that's great when you know, we can joke around and have a good time like that. I think it's a wonderful thing. So I appreciate that very, very much. Uh, also, first time I've ever seen Beth Moore. Now I know a lot about Beth Moore. I read her books. And uh, some of our ladies do a women's Bible study. She has a lot of good information. She has a, uh, the, the Ascent Psalms to the temple. She's got a lot of good ones. In fact, one time, one of our friends, they did a small feast site in Terre Haute, Indiana. And they used her material throughout the feast because she had a lot of good material about the tabernacle. And she has a lot of good information about that. But I'd never seen her. In fact, some people told me what she'd be like with the seer. But uh, she, was, she has a lot of energy. But, so I, but again, I've read many of her books, but I've never seen her before. So, and as, as, as Mr. Gregory said so eloquently, <laughs> is that we always we read information and we take personal responsibility for what we do. In fact, that's what I want you to do in the sermon today. I want you, in all of my sermons, as I tell you, when I come to an area, I want to point you to God and encourage you. I also want you to think. I want you to think. Will you agree with me? You'll agree with me because you think it's true. Where you don't agree with me, either I'm wrong, you're wrong, or we're both wrong. <laughs> so the thing is we take personal responsibility, we just be kind to each other. Normally most people agree with what I'm saying, and I expect today you'll agree with most of the things I say. However, I did choose a subject today that could give some of you room to disagree with me. And you'll see what I mean here in a minute. In other words, most of you will probably agree with what I say. Some of you will learn from what I'm about to say and have that aha moment. And some of you will sit there and say, Dave's a nice guy, but I don't know that I agree with him. So I've kind of picked somewhat of a controversial subject entitled Understanding True Faith. And there's more to just the material that I'm giving but it's also, I'm also setting a tone for how to study. How to study. Because this book, you can make this book say anything. Look at all the religions out there that do that. You can make all sorts of doctrines and they all use this book. Now, I, I agree this is the book of life. And I, I agree that we, God gives us truth, inspires us, and we use this great book. So I'm not diminishing this book at all. I'm just telling you, and you know from history, look at the different denominations, look at your friends, look at your family, maybe even some of the things, differences between husbands and wives. You can make this book say anything. You just pick and choose, in fact, they call it proof texting. And we try real hard not to proof text. We try real hard to look at the scripture, 
Try to look at it in context. Try to look at the history. And then when God gives the inspiration, that's how we can understand certain prophecies and understand certain things. Proof texting is having a conclusion and just finding all sorts of scriptures to, to make your point true. So what I want to help you today is, a simple fact I want to help you in the study of things. I'm going to ask you, as you study the Bible, the Bible has to make a certain amount of sense and be logical to you. Now understand, logic can get us in trouble. Understand, some churches have taught that you should not have human reasoning. And some churches have taught human reasoning is bad. But I'm telling you, human reasoning is generally good. In fact, you're, you're going to be called to the kingdom. You've been called to the kingdom because of human reasoning. In other words, God does not call cockroaches to the kingdom. God does not call chickens to the kingdom. God does not call smart animals, smart dogs, or smart monkeys. Because some of those animals are very smart. But when it says God's spirit connects with your spirit and man, that is why you go to the kingdom. So when, you have a, when you're in a church that tries to get you to do group think, they're really going against what God wants. See, God wants you to think. Now, just like alcohol can be good or alcohol can be a sin, and other things can be good or can be a sin, human reason can become a problem. But human reason is not the problem, it's the abuse of it. So I'm encouraging you to think. I'm encouraging you to use your head. I'm encouraging you to be smart. Let me give you an example of that. There's an example, uh, and by the way, these aren't on the handout, so I'm just throwing these out. Remember when uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice his son? We love that story, right? I love that story because I know what it pictures. But how does it affect me? How does it affect my day-to-day -day life? In other words, if Mr. Gregory and all the other elders and all the other people, all you smart people came up to me and said, we want you to kill your son. That does not pass the logic test to me. It doesn't, I don't have to diminish what that story was all about. It doesn't pass the logic test. I'm not killing my kid. Now, I can, exp I can understand why Abraham did it. The culture was different. He knew God was talking to him. I understand all that. But me here in, in 2012, it's got to pass the logic test. And I want you to remember that. Because what we're going to talk about true faith, I'm going to point it to you from the logic point of view. Just for the record, although God's way is usually logical, it's not always logical. Let me give you an example about that. Remember when the children of Israel were going out of Egypt? Now, we had the advantage of hindsight. We know the route that they took. God took them in that route because he was going to open the seas and do a miracle. But when they were walking on that thing, their path didn't make any sense. They're going down that road and they're like, why are we going this way? Well, they couldn't see ahead that God had bigger plans in mind. So I can honestly say in that situation, when they left Egypt, their route did not make sense. I can tell you, if we were walking out that way, I'd go to Barnaby and say, Barnaby, that doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Are we, are we sure we're going the right way? And Barnaby would say, Dave, we're going to follow Moses because we think we, God's leading Moses. We're going to follow Moses. But I'd say, Barnaby, does it make sense to you? He'd go, not really. It doesn't make any sense to me either. But we're going to follow. So there's occasional situations like that that doesn't make sense at the time that will make sense in 40 days later. It'll make sense. But I'm telling you, even though that's the exception, I'm saying most of your life should make sense. 
Most of your Bible study should make sense. I'll give an example. Another church, it's a church of God. I've got friends in Dallas. And unfortunately, their church leader is acting pompous and promoting himself in a way he shouldn't, should not. So my friend in Dallas is mortgaging his house to give his money to headquarters. Yeah. And see, to me, that doesn't pass the logic test. That doesn't make sense. So I'm telling you, even, you know, think about it. Whenever you look at certain things and you're studying your word, you're listening to Beth Moore, you're reading other books, you're studying church literature, you're reading your Bible and you're reading your Bible, see if it makes sense. Okay, understanding true faith. I'm going to give you the first bunch of handouts, scriptures on the handout. Are, I could make a case for something I don't believe. Remember I said you could make the Bible say anything? I can build an effective case. Let's turn to Mark chapter 11. I can make an effective case for the name it, claim it gospel. Now, let me, say, let me tell you right up front, I really don't believe in the name it, claim it gospel. And I'm going to tell you why I don't believe it. Here's where some of you might disagree with me. There are many people in churches today who believe in name it, claim it. There might even be a person or two in here who believes in name it, claim it. I don't believe it. You might, and you still might at the end of the sermon. That's your business. I'm, I guess I want to influence you not to believe it. I think the name it, claim it is wrong, but it's very common. You will see it if you listen to talk to church people, you hear name it, claim it. And if you listen to your friends in the church, you'll hear name it, claim it. And someone can say, well, don't they get scriptures? Sure, I have, a, I have two, four, six, eight, nine scriptures on the handout that prove name it, claim it. If you look to the English translation, the English words, name it, claim it means this. God, you made a promise. I name it. I claim it. You have to do it. Now, if you, if you have some of those thoughts, I'll tell you why it doesn't pass the logic test, especially if you're a parent. Do you let your kids do everything they say. Because if you do, then they're in charge of you. There are times you as a parent have to say no. And so, but name it, claim it is, I don't care what you think, God. I don't care what your will is, God. I, you said this promise. I name it. I claim it. You have to do it. And that, to me, is treating God like a dog. Here, God. Now you say, Dave, I don't believe that. I would, I would not want to treat God that way. You have to do it my way. You said you have to do it. Now I'm going to show you through Scripture that we, how to pray from the Scripture, and it's different than a lot of you believe. The way to pray is a lot like the teenagers pray. A lot like those teenagers, we were going to pray like they pray, or a lot like kids. I was talking to one of you out in the hall, talking about your three-year-old son and the way he prays and the way the three-year-old son negotiates. Remember we were having that discussion? The three-year-old son negotiates. And I made a comment to him. I said, that's how Jesus told us to pray. And you're going to say, no, no way. Well, you can either believe traditions or you can believe what the book says. But anyway, the, let's look at Mark 11, verses 22 through uh, 24. It says here, 
Jesus answered, saying, Do you have faith? Have faith to God. For truly I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be you removed, be cast into the sea, and if you don't have any doubts in your heart, but if you believe that those things shall happen, he shall have whatever he says. Name it, claim it, whatever he says. Verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, whatever you desire when you pray, if you believe it, you'll receive it, you'll have it. So according to those English words, quoting Jesus, those English words would say, you can have whatever you want, you can have whatever you desire. That means, I suppose, if you really believe that you're a man and you could have five prostitutes at one time, God has to give it to you. Now you say, well, Dave, when you put it that way, it sounds silly. Well, that's the whole point. Name and claim it is not accurate. You can't have whatever you desire. He, Jesus is talking us to believe. Jesus is talking us to not have doubts. But there's some elements missing that name it, claim it, will, will you know, in other words, it puts the person in charge. And we're going to cover all that. But you can look later on all these other verses. I, I'm not going to take the time, all the verses on the handout, where Jesus says, whatsoever you ask, if you ask anything, you know, in other words, whatever you desire, you can have. So even though I can build the case by picking out those nine segments of verses, that's, a, that's quite a sampling, nine verses is quite a sampling, I could make that point theologically, it doesn't pass the logic test. And I'm going to show you today in my time three points about faith that I believe are true faith that help nuke, nuke, nuclear attack against the name it, claim it, should help you practical living of how what faith is. Number one, I believe that God as a perfect father will supply our personal needs because he's trustworthy and because he loves us. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I believe that God will supply all my needs. First of all, because he's trustworthy. And he says something, you can count on him. You can count on God for anything he truly says. And he loves me. And just like a parent, don't you want to give your children everything they need? A little child comes out, you keep them warm, you, you change their diapers, you feed them, mom usually breastfeeds them, you're taking care of all their needs, and through life you always want to take care of your child's needs. See, a lot of people have what's called also the health and wealth gospel. The health and wealth gospel is if you obey God, you will always be healthy. The health and wealth gospel says if you obey God, you'll always be wealthy. I don't believe in the health and wealth gospel. Because I know some people who are sick who are very obedient. You know, Matt talked about, he, he was asking a, a question about, uh, essence was something like, why does God let su certain suffering going on? And I was waiting for his answer. And then he said, I don't know. And I said, what, what help you were up there? Not? <laughs> but it's a great question to ask because one of the most important in life is why God lets suffering. Excuse me, I want to mention something else. Uh, we do, I, I like to do the suffering question in an interactive Bible study. I'm going to pose something to you. 
First of all, I want to tell you, I do not believe in reincarnation. Okay? You say, why do you have to say that? Because of what I'm about to say. I do not believe in reincarnation. But my challenge to our local members is this. Can you come up with good biblical scriptures and ideas to help people understand the nature of suffering? People oftentimes become agnostic because they can't handle the suffering question. Some people become atheists because they can't handle the, 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 the suffering question. But I tell people, here's one of the theories about reincarnation which I don't believe in. But I know, I know a lady in East Texas. She's been suffering since she was born. Her life story is horrible. And she comes to me and she asks me, why am I suffering? Why does God let suffering? Well, the reincarnation theory would say this, which I don't believe. The reincarnation theory would say, in a previous life, she was the abuser. So she has to come back in this life as the abused. Now I will say this, on some level that helps people be comforted. My challenge to you is this, as Christians, we've got to do better than that. I don't want to minimize the reincarnation view. What I want to do is, let's make sure we meditate and think about and pray about and ask God to help us, that we can use the truth to help that person more. You see what I'm saying? My challenge to us is, you know, let's go to God and say, God, really help. I want to help this person deal with suffering. Because God has believers suffer. So some, some obedient Christians are sick. And some obedient Christians are poor. So when, watch out for those televangelists who get up and say the health and wealth gospel. I mean, God's way produces blessings. We all know that. But Jesus Christ suffered and died for us, and he said we would do the same. Thankfully, many of us are not martyred yet. And maybe the days of martyring will come again. But we do suffer like Jesus Christ suffered. The reason I point this out is 1 Corinthians 10, 13 doesn't say you won't have trials. See, some people say, I have faith, I'll never have trials. It doesn't work that way, brethren. What, this is what faith is. There's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. God is faithful. But he will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. But with the temptation, will make a way to escape that you'll be able to bear it. Your faith cannot be that trials will not, won't come. The, the faith is, when God has a trial for you, He helps you get out of it. He shows you the way out of it. He comforts you through it. He challenges you through it. He leads you through it. He blesses you through it. But it can hurt. When Jesus Christ was being whipped... And God was with him. And he had complete faith in God. As he, was, as he was bleeding, as he was hurting, as he was bruising. God was with him through the trial. So God will be with us, with us through the trial. So if you think, God will never let me have a trial, that's, that's artificial faith. That's hope. True faith is, if God has you in a trial, he's promised you a way of escape. I think last time I came, I talked about a bunch of those ways of escape last time, so we're not going to go through all that today. But the point is, God will take care of your every need. Let's look at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. Here's one of the ways when Jesus taught us how to pray, taught his disciples how to pray, we learned the same. <coughs> Excuse me. It came to Luke 11, verse 1. It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he was done one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples how to pray. 
Well, verses 2 through 4 talk about the section we call the Lord's Prayer. So let's drop down to verse 5. Here's what Jesus said about teaching you how to pray. Which of you then shall have a friend come at midnight and say, Friend, I need three loaves of bread. Ray, it's midnight, it's Dave, I'm up from Big Sandy. Ray! And the friend is on a journey, and he has nothing to set before him. And Ray says to me, look at verse 7, don't you see Ray's name in there? <laughs> Trouble me not, Dave. My door is shut, I'm in my pajamas. The children are in bed. I have to put my slippers on, the floor's cold. I'm not getting up, you should have gotten here sooner. Doesn't say all that in verse 7, weren't you reading all that? Ray! Ray, I need some bread. Actually, it would be more like Martha coming over. Ray, I need some bread. Martha's his mother-in-law, and I'm staying at his mother-in-law's place. Dave Haver just showed up. Do you have any plums? How about, the, how about those good pears? Ray, it's your mother-in-law. And he says, why didn't you send Papa over? He's sleeping, Ray! This is the way Jesus said to pray. Now, it may not be the way you like it. It may not be the way you like to tell it. I'm just quoting what Jesus said. Verse 8. Though he won't rise because he's a friend. Ugh. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him what he needs. God will take care of your needs. Point number one is he'll take care of your needs. Now point number two is I believe that God will often give us the desires of our heart because he loves us. Now did you notice the difference between one and two? One is he will give you your needs. And number two is he will often give you the desires of your heart. Let's look at Psalm chapter 21 verse 2. Now, just again, look at the logic test. If you're a loving man toward your wife or you're a loving wife, woman toward your husband, don't you try to serve each other's needs? That's not, isn't that the essence of marriage? Two people coming together as one flesh, serving each other's needs? And really, isn't even that the, not that the commitment you made at marriage? But not only don't you try to also serve the other person's desires? If your marriage is growing and you're not having grudges, if you're not having bitterness or fighting, don't you try to go out of your... In fact, if you're trying to overcome certain bitternesses in your marriage, maybe you should try to serve the other person's desires. That can help maybe fight your own bitterness and those bitterness can ooze away. If we can figure that out as married couples, don't we know that God's got that figured out before we were ever created? And how about your children? Don't you take care of your children's needs? But do you always take care of their desires? Again, the name and claim it would be some eight-year-old boy comes up and says, Dad, I'm having my motorcycle by Wednesday. I name it. I claim it. You will give me my motorcycle by Wednesday. How's that work, Dad? How does it make you feel, Dad? So if that's the way it makes you feel as a dad, 
How can you think you can do that to God? God, I name it, I claim it, you'll give it to me. And God's looking down at you like we look at our kids and says, you got a mouth on you, boy. <laughs> what makes you think I'm going to give you a motorcycle at age eight? My son has a motorcycle. He's 28. My wife still hates it, but I told my wife, he's 28. You know, he can, you know, I know you prefer him not to ride a motorcycle. He didn't have a motorcycle when he lived at home, but he's on his own. He has a motorcycle, and Mama can't do much about it now. And Dad's... Dad's just be safe, boy, just be safe, you know. That's, I, mean, that's, I don't care if he, I wouldn't have bought it for him, but that's his life. I don't, I don't have a motorcycle, but I don't mind. But age eight, with my son said, Dad, you are giving me a motorcycle. I can tell you what, my view of life is you, you don't challenge City Hall. Don't challenge your parents. It doesn't work. But I am going to try to tell you, use your brains to negotiate with your parents. Your parents are saying, what are you telling my kids? What are you doing? What are you doing? I am telling them to treat you like we're supposed to treat God. Now, I have to tell you young people, your parents will lose patience a lot faster than God will. God says we can keep doing it over and over and over and over and over again. Your parents will finally say enough is enough. But, see, my, my boys knew that if they wanted money, they would go to mom. If they wanted freedom, they would come to me. And what did I say about that? I'm saying, I would tell them, you're smart boys. I want you to be smart. If you come from me for money, you're nuts. You know? <laughs> and if, if you go to your mom for freedom, you're nuts. You say, wait a second, you're kind of telling the young people to be smart, almost playing against each other? Yeah. I'm telling people to be smart. Because if, you, if your young people are smart, by the way, parents, it's never smart to get drunk. It's never smart to have premarital sex. But it is smart to play your parents against each other. You see the difference? You see the difference? Okay? Some things are sin and evil, and some things are just being smart. Okay? I, live in a logical world, folks. Live in a practical world. Now, you got to, you know, like we are talking about one of, the, one of the three-year-old. We are talking about the three-year-olds already trying to negotiate. And my response was, great. Why would you be encouraging a three-year-old to negotiate? That's what they got to do. That's what three-year-olds do. You know, that's what they do. You know, teenagers act like teenagers. We act like our age. Here we go acting our age again. But notice again, Psalm 21, verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. God promises us he'll give us what we need. And sometimes he gives us what we desire. Dave, is it okay for us to ask God and tell him what we want? First of all, he already knows. Remember, he reads our thoughts. He knows what we need before we ask. He knows what we want before we ask. Why do we even go through the process of talking to him since he can read our thoughts? He wants a relationship. God's all about relate. You know, theology is great, but sometimes people get so caught up in theology, they don't have relationship with people. Religion sometimes gets caught up in traditions and stuff. There's no relationship with people. God's all about relationships. The marriage, we heard about the marriage relationship, the parent relationship, the congregation relationship. Is God really concerned about the color of your carpeting you're going to put in? Or is God more concerned about how you as a team work together to raise the funds, to analyze what you're supposed to do, and how you're going to implement it tonight and through the rest of the week? God's concerned about the relationship. 
Does, does this congregation really need the words I'm going to say? Or is God concerned about my relationship with this congregation and your relationship with our congregation? It's the relationship. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor all as yourself. It's about the relationship. And so thereby, we're supposed to go to God and say, God, you know what else is on my mind, but every parent wants to talk to their kids. And they love it when little three-year-olds and five-year-olds just babbling away, babbling, babbling. And they miss it when the teenagers sometimes, sometimes go into withholding and they don't want to talk to their parents. Parents miss that. God wants the talking. God wants you to tell him what your heart's desire is. Don't be embarrassed about your heart's desire. He knows what your heart's desire is. If you desire a better job, talk about it. If you desire a better car, talk about it. If you desire to find a mate, talk about it with him. Talk about it with him. Pester him a little bit. Notice Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all who wait upon you, and you give them their meat in due season. Their meat, their food, that's a need. So verse 15 is a need. But verse 16 says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God will, in my opinion, will, I don't like to use the word always, but I, I, I feel comfortable saying God will always satisfy your need. Sometimes the answer is no, by the way, but he will always satisfy your need, and he will often satisfy your desire. Let's look at another example, Luke 18. The second example of Jesus said about how to pray. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. As you're turning there, let me... Let me ask you the question. Is justice a need or a desire? Think about the answer. Is justice a need or a desire? Now, you oftentimes can come back with the answer that it's a need. But I will tell you, in this life, justice is a desire. It, justice is ultimately a need. In other words, think about Jesus. Was Jesus always treated with justice? Well, obviously not. Did he finally get justice? Three days and three nights later. Right? Will you always get justice in this life? You may get justice three days or three nights later or whatever amount of time from your death to the actual resurrection. Not, I'm not, don't, don't lock your in the three days and three nights. You may die in this life not getting the justice you're due. But you will get the justice in the resurrection in the kingdom of God. So thereby... Are you guaranteed justice in this life? The answer is no. You're guaranteed ultimate justice. Thereby, justice today, if your desire for justice today is a desire. Is it a good desire? Absolutely, it's a good desire. If you want your boss to treat you fairly, that's a good desire. If you want your parents to treat you fairly, that's a good desire. If you want your pastor to treat you fairly, that's a good desire. If you want the members to treat the pastor fairly, that's a good desire. But justice is not, does not always come. I point that out now to realize, notice how to pray again. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, from Jesus Christ. He spoke a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. He said, there was a, in the city there was a judge who did not fear God and didn't like people. And there was a widow in that city, and she came into the city to him saying, I want justice. This guy's bugging me. This guy's taking advantage of me. He's ripping me off. 
He's done a con job on me. He stole my money. He stole my pension. He, I paid too much for this vacuum cleaner. Whatever it was. And she wanted justice. So did she ask one time? Did she make her petition one time and sit back and say, I've made my petition now. I know it's going to come. No. By the way, this is how we pray. See, some of you pray, some of you were taught to pray. You ask God once and you have faith and just say, Father, this is me. I've entered your throne and I want to ask, make this request of you. And I'm asking one time and I'm going to leave it in your hands. You can do that if you want to. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, pray like those teenagers. Dad, I'm 16. When can I get my driver's license? I'd like my driver's license. I'd like my driver's license. I'd like my driver's license. When are you going to give me my driver's license? You know, and then, I'll, what, what, what kind of car can I get? Dad, I was thinking of getting a brand new Volkswagen, but since that's pretty expensive, I'll just take a five-year-old car. Where am I going to get my five-year-old car? Where am I going to get my five-year-old car? Dad, can my five-year-old car be blue? How about a stick shift, Dad? What do you think? Stick shift, Dad? Blue stick shift? He's saying, don't encourage my teens that way. This is the way God said to pray. He said, you should pray that way. God, how about justice? How about justice? How's, it, how's my new job coming, God? I'm getting kind of tired. You saw, you saw the way my boss was with me. When's that new job coming? Any new leads? Who can I call? What should I do? I'm not sitting back. I'll do what I have to, but sir, open, what doors are you going to open for me? New job, God? New go job, God? What do you think, God? When am I going to get that new job, God? And you think, you would never do that? Well, that's what Jesus said. Because he said, verse 4, For a while he wouldn't do it. The judge wouldn't do it. And afterwards he said in his heart, I don't believe in God. I hate people. But this widow troubles me. And I will avenge her. Because she's wearing me out. I'm tired of her voice. I'm tired of her face. I'm tired of every time I'm on the phone, she comes and bugs me. She knocks on the door. My secretary says, it's her again. I'm tired of her. What does she desire? I'll do it. That's the way Jesus said to pray. You can pray any way you want, but you cannot deny the fact that's the way Jesus said to pray. Verse 6, hear the unjust judge. And, so, and then verse 7, Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night with him, though he bear long with them? See, instead of name it, claim it. Instead of bullying God and say, you have to do this, you cannot bully God, but you can pester him. God does not want to be bullied, but he doesn't mind being pestered. And so he will give you what you need, and always give you what you need, and he will often give you what you desire. Now the third point is, I believe that God sometimes says no to our requests, and those requests are usually our desires, because he loves us. Let's look at James 4, verses 2 and 3. Yeah, I already used the example earlier about a person who wanted to have uh, some stupid request or a lustful request. See, God's not going to fulfill your request for lust. He's not going to do that. James 4, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, You lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have, but you cannot obtain. You fight in war. Look at this last phrase in verse 2. Yet you have not because you don't ask. Okay, the first thing you got to do is ask. 
But the second thing you have to do, verse 3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. See, name it, claim it can be amiss. Name it, claim it can be wrong. Name and claim it can be stupid. Name and claim it can be sinful. Name and claim it can be lustful. God is not going to fulfill your addictions. If you, ask, if you have an alcohol addiction and you ask God for alcohol and you claim it, He's not going to give it to you. If you have a sex addiction, He's not going to fulfill your sex addiction just because you claim it. I mean, you don't do that, do you? You, when someone in your house, has, a recovering alcoholic's in your house, do you offer him alcohol? You better not. I, I don't personally drink. I, ha, I serve people, but when I have my al recovering alcoholic friends, come, I will not tempt them with alcohol. I'm not going to do that. Even if they ask me, even if they say, Dave, I've got it under control. I, can, I drink one a month now. I'd say, I'd say their names, no, no. I'm, I've been there with you. I'm going to stay there with you. But uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no to this request because I love you. And they, they, and my friends, they they never would ask me because they they like to be recovering. And if they get tempted to not, what, whatever. What's your addiction? And you say I'm going to ask this. What? God's not going to fulfill your addiction. Let's look at some examples. Let's look at three examples. Deuteronomy three. Verses 23 through 27. Three famous examples. Ever hear of the guy named Moses? Pretty good guy. Do you remember the time when God said no to Moses? Look at here. Deuteronomy 3, verse 23. And I besought the eternal at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth that can do according to your works and according to your might? I pray you, let me go to the promised land. Let me go beyond Jordan. Let me go to the good mountains. Let me go to Lebanon. But the eternal was wroth with me for your sakes, and would not hear me. And the eternal said unto, unto me, Let it suffice you, speak. I don't want to hear about it anymore. No. I name, I name it. I'm going to the promised land. God said, No, you're not. I thought name and claim it always worked. No. By the way, do you remember why God said no to Moses? Because he hit the rock in anger back in Numbers. This time, this time God said no because he sinned. So sometimes you tell your child, no, I know you've asked for this liberty, you've asked for this privilege, but remember that decision you made. Remember when you wrecked the car? I, we're not going to get you a new car right now. The answer is no. Moses made a mistake. Here, here's, what, here's what he said, verse 27. Go to the top of that mountain. Look west and north and south and east. Look, because that's all you're going to. That's the closest you're getting to the promised land. Let's look at the next example. 2 Samuel 12, verses 15 through 23. You ever heard the man David? Did you know David said, God said no to David? You remember the circumstances. Why did God say no to David? Well, he sinned again. He committed adultery, and then he did the worst thing. He tried to cover it up through murder. The cover-up's always worse than the initial sin. But God said no. Oh, by the way, did you know this? Remember David was fasting? Now, some people would say, if you're fasting, God has to say yes. 
See, if, if you go to God and you're fasting, you say, God, I'm not doing any food, I'm not doing any water, I'm spending extra time in prayer and study, I, I'm, 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 I'm taking food to the poor on this fast day, because that's a good thing to do. It's not just going without food and water, it's doing good work. When you fast, you should be doing good works, too, according to Isaiah. So I'm not taking any food, not doing any water. In fact, I'm taking food to the poor. I'm actually going over there and doing plumbing on a widow's house on this fast day. And so, sir, I'm fasting, and you love fasting. And so there, I'm asking you now, on this day of fasting, would you please fulfill the desire of my heart? And God said, no. Verse 15. Nathan departed to his house, and the Eternal struck the child that Uriah's wife bare to David, and was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child. And David fasted, and he laid on, it, on his belly on the earth. And the elders of the house arose and went to see him, to raise him up and encourage him. But he wouldn't get up, he wouldn't eat and drink. It came to pass seven days the child died. And the servants were, said, I don't, I don't want to tell him, he's been... He's been grumpy and a mess. What's, how's he going to be when he hears the child's dead? Uh, I'm not, you go tell him. I'm not going to tell him. You go tell him. I'm not going to tell him. And God said no. The third example is 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12. This one's a little different. Verses 7 through 9. This one's a little different. In Moses' example, God said no because of Moses' sin. In David's example, God said no because of David's sin. In this example, God says no to Paul, and there's no sin involved. So you want to take note of this example. Because sometimes if God says no, it's because you made a mistake or had to sin. But sometimes God will say no to glorify his name. But God has to say yes, I have faith. I name it, I claim it. And God said, no, I don't have to say yes at all. In fact, what did I do wrong? Son, daughter, and this time you didn't do anything wrong. But I got something working here. And here's where this comes up a lot of times with cancer. When we pray, don't we want quick healings? Don't we want instantaneous healings? I do. When I pray for a healing for you, I want you to be healed quickly, immediately. That's what I want for you. And sometimes God says, you know, no, we're not going to do it fast. I'm going to let you deal with the cancer over a period of days, weeks, months, and even years. And I want you to be an example to people. I, I talked to a man. Uh, I, I'm, I'm listening constantly for God's voice. I don't hear voices, okay, but I'm always listening for God's voice. I like to learn from everybody. Beth Moore, uh, Joyce Myers, Max Lucado. And as we all know, I think they're wrong in some of their technicalities. Well, you and I are smart enough to look at that stuff and say, that's right, and that's right, and no, I don't believe that. Yeah, that way you can read lots of things, you can hear lots of people, and you're able to process what you consider obvious mistakes. I'm always listening to God's voice. I learn from, I learn from men, women, I learn from old people, I learn from teenagers. I'm listening for, when I hear, say I'm listening for God's voice, I'm listening for truth. And when I talk to a five, if a five-year-old says something true, and they do, because what does it say? We should become like little children. Sometimes a five-year-old will say the most precious truth. No God, just blurt it out. I'm always listening for God's voice. See, I'm not title-based. I'm not title-based. If someone says the Pope has this title or Billy Graham has that title, I mean, I can learn from them too, but the point is I'm not, I'm not interested in titles. I'm listening for truth. I'm always listening for truth. So I was taking Mr. Moran, a member of our congregation. We were doing 
chemo treatments for two years. He just died last week. And I've met a lot of nursing people. And I, there was a little black man. He was 86 years old. Because we sit and talk. To when I take him in for chemo, I sit and talk to people. He's 86, and he's talking about he had prostate cancer for the last 20 years. I never asked him which day he observed. I wasn't interested in that. I didn't ask what he believed in the immortal soul or the, or, or the heaven or hell. I didn't, I didn't care about that. I already knew what I believe about that. I don't need to hear his opinion. But I asked him, you know, well, how did you deal with the cancer for 20 years? And I was just listening to this simple little man talk about his faith and his belief. And I was just listening to the voice of God coming through that man. Like I said, I wasn't trying to learn about the distinctives I already know about, the doctrines I already know about. I'm always listening for the voice of God. And I'm always listening for truth. I don't care where it comes from. I'm listening for truth. And that man, God helped him for 20 years. What's the, greatest, what's the greater miracle? Being healed of cancer in a second or living with something for 20 years? Well, to me, the greater miracle is the 20-year thing. Which one do I want? I want the immediate healing for me. I want the immediate healing for you. I'm not, don't make no bones about what I want for you or me. But what's the greater miracle? Sometimes God says, no, I'm going to do it a little differently. So you, are you, you've been in a trial for a long time. God hasn't stopped loving you. In fact, God may be saying to you, I'm saying no right now for another reason. Look in verse, uh, coming up to my time. I know they said I can go till an hour, but I'm not. I'm not. So I'm going to be done here in the, real quickly here. In fact, I'm going to real quickly, I'm going to go to verse, uh, verse 8. He besought the Lord three times that this might depart from him, the thorn in the flesh. And the answer was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes God says this, I'm going to keep you weak in that financial trial. I'm going to keep you weak in that health trial. I'm going to keep you weak in that relationship trial. Because I'm going to work in you. And by you being a tool of mine, I'm going to show my power in a way far greater than a great miracle. Sometimes the staying with you through the trial is the greater miracle than solving the trial immediately. We all want the trial solved immediately, but sometimes God says, no, I can understand you saying you want relief. I'm going to give you relief, but I'm going to give you relief a little different way than you ask. You see how faith is involved in that? You see why we shouldn't lose faith when we're going through some tough times? And again, as I pointed out to you, starting out, you can make the case for name it, claim it, theologically, it does not pass the logic test. When you study the scripture, make sure you use the logic test. Does this make sense? And uh, that'll see you through a lot of tough times. There may be a couple times where God's way doesn't always make sense, but most of the time it will. Because God is, God is logical, God is loving, God is caring. Faith. Remember, brethren, I believe that God, as a perfect father, will supply our personal needs because he's trustworthy and because he loves us. Number two, I believe that God will often give us the desires of our heart because he loves us. And number three, I believe that God sometimes says no to our request because he loves us. And if you, if you think of the family unit and if you think about the many great scriptures, 
I hope that this will help you have an understanding of true faith.